Welcome to this podcast for the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality, the mission of which is to connect the practical truths of economics with the perennial truths of ethics and building a sustained and accessible defense of free enterprise, entrepreneurship, and stewardship in the moral categories consonant with most Americans. I'm David Bowes, your host. This podcast introduces the book Indivisible, Restoring Faith, Family, and Freedom Before It's Too Late, written by James Robeson and Ph.D. Director and Senior Fellow of the Center, Jay Richards. We'll talk with Dr. Richards about the purpose of the book and the importance of engaging in the public arena. Why don't you first of all start with what the purpose of the book is? The purpose of the book, quite frankly, is to bring together three important constituencies of the American public. We call it the Coalition of Faith, Family, and Freedom. In other words, those people that are concerned about religious liberty, that have a religious faith that drives their interest in public life. Then those people that are just minding their own business, concerned about their families and their jobs, that think correctly but aren't really interested in politics. And then the third group are those people that are really animated and convinced that limited government and our freedoms are under attack. And those tend to be somewhat overlapping people, but not necessarily people working together, rowing in the same direction. And so what we want to do is bring together this coalition of people that are concerned about those things, because we think if we don't do that, if we don't have a large enough constituency of, of Americans thinking correctly and, and rowing in the same direction, we're pessimistic that we'll be able to restore our culture. But we're optimistic that if a right group of people and a large enough group of people start thinking strategically and acting strategically, that we can turn things around before it's too late. One of the criticisms on the far right, the libertarian point of view, that matches up with one of the criticisms of the left-leaning thinkers these days mm -hmm. is this idea that Christians are seeking some kind of a theocracy, and you address that in the book. Are Christians seeking a theocracy? None that I know of, and I've never actually met anyone that advocates a theocracy. I mean, maybe there's someone in a compound somewhere. But, you know, this idea that, say, the religious right, you know, in 1980 or, or Christians today want a theocracy is absurd. I mean, a theocracy, strictly speaking, is it would be a, a political system in which, say, the priests or the clerics speaking on behalf of God rule and have sort of absolute autocratic rule. There are just simply no movement for that, and certainly there's no movement for that among Christians. The truth of the matter is, is that a lot of Christians have gotten involved in politics when they weren't involved initially. I mean, like the original emergence of the so-called religious right in 1980, that was millions of evangelicals that were kind of separatists. They didn't really think politics mattered all that much, and they'd more or less dropped out, but they felt like their faith and their religious freedom were under attack, an attack on marriage, there was uh, the Roe v. Wade decision, things like that. So they felt like they had to get involved. That's, of course, changed now. Lots of people are involved in politics, and there's, you know, there's a religious right, there's religious conservatives, and there's a religious left. But James Madison, uh, one of the founders, actually said why the idea of a theocracy is unlikely. It's because there's a diversity of religious viewpoints in the United States. I mean, even Christians, which make up, according to polls, something like 85% of the population, have different traditions. I mean, there's all sorts of different Protestant traditions. There's Catholics, there's Eastern Orthodox. And so no Methodist campaign to establish a theocracy would ever work uh, for the simple reason that the Presbyterians and the Catholics would be opposed to it. And the same thing is true in the other direction. What Madison said is that if Christians and religious people are to make a difference in the public square, what they'll have to do is join 
forces on those things that are testified to in terms of the natural law. So in other words, ideas like human dignity, the campaign for civil rights, the campaign against slavery, those were moral truths that were available to everyone. They weren't parochial religious concerns of one or another denomination. And that's the truth. What we hope to see is people of faith, not just Christians, but Christians and Jews and Mormons and others, working together. But we want them to work together on these foundational truths that are part of the American experiment, not on some parochial concern that they may have in their individual denominations. So what is the role of faith in the public square? Well, Dave, it's a really tough question. We have a whole chapter in the book called God in Public. Uh, Just to distill it, it's essentially this. We think the the American tradition is quite clear that people ought to be able to bring their religious faith to public life. If Christians weren't able to apply their theological beliefs to politics, there would never have been a civil rights movement. There would never have been an American Revolution. The abolition of slavery would have never happened. Those all happened because of people's religious and theological aspirations. And so the secularist idea that you're somehow violating the separation of church and state if you bring your religious ideas into the public square is absurd, and it's completely contrary to the American experiment. On the other hand, of course, we want to develop in the public square public arguments for our position. So for instance, you know, I have a particular view on abortion, and it's informed by the fact that I think every human being is created in the image of God. But I think in the public square, that's not going to be the argument that would be made. I would say, the founding of America, we were founded on the principles that every human being was endowed by his creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this idea that every individual has intrinsic value and that their life ought to be respected, that's not just a narrow Christian belief. That's a part of the American experience itself. And so I think just appealing to those American ideals that we supposedly all hold as Americans, I think you can make the pro-life case without ever appealing to your religious views. So I would say, on the one hand, Christians and other people of faith should feel free to bring their religious views into the public square and to have their politics be inspired by their religious beliefs. On the other hand, insofar as possible, when we're building political constituencies, we want to make our arguments and our case on the best public arguments available and not sort of anchor everything maybe on our uh, narrower religious concerns. What does society have to gain from reconnecting with its Judeo-Christian roots? Well, I would say reconnecting with our Christian roots is reconnecting with the American founding. I mean, a lot of people will put this in an unnuanced way. They'll say, well, America was a Christian nation, or all the founders were Christians or something. And I would not put it that way, just because I think it doesn't quite make the point precisely. But if you take those foundational principles of the American Revolution, I mean, even Thomas Jefferson, who was a deist, he wasn't an Orthodox Christian, talked about nature and nature's God. He's the one that penned those words in the Declaration of Independence, in which he appealed to our Creator. All Americans, even those that are irreligious, have this intuitive sense that we have specific rights that are not given to us by the state, but they're they're just built into us. They're what we are as humans. Well, if you try to ask the question, okay, where did those ideas come from, this idea of individual human rights, you work your way back and you end up in the Judeo-Christian tradition. If you say, well, it's based on science or it's based on just clear philosophical reflection, you're going to lose that argument because all you have to do is look at human history. This idea that human 
human beings are created equal, that each of us has equal value, it's an extremely counterintuitive idea. In fact, most cultures in history have said just the opposite, that humans are most unequal. It's only when you, I think, have this sort of deep theological conviction that we're created in God's image that you can actually ground individual human rights. And so I wouldn't say that the United States is a Christian nation, but I would say that the American ideals that were part of the American founding that are in our founding documents draw very robustly on the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so if we cut that off, we're essentially cutting off the branch that we're sitting on as Americans. So how did the cultural perspective change from Judeo-Christian to one in which currently the Judeo-Christian tradition is seen oftentimes as a stumbling block or backwardness by the elite culture? It's a complicated story, and every historical event has multiple causes, but I would say it's largely rooted in some developments in the 19th century. First, you've got the philosophical tradition of what can be called materialism or scientific materialism or secularism, which basically says that, at least in the public square, we have to be practical atheists. We just sort of have to assume that materialism and atheism are true, and so all of our public policy has to be based on that. Well, it's very difficult to do that, actually. Like I said earlier, it's very hard to get an idea of human rights if you're going to be a practical atheist. And so, but that emergence of this philosophical idea of materialism that now occupies the commanding heights of culture, that's one part of the problem. And by commanding heights of culture, I mean most of the media, political elites, certainly academic elites assume this kind of practical atheism. And so what that translates into is an extreme secularism in the public square. Uh, The other thing is progressivism, which really came to the fore in the 19th century. And in many ways, I would call progressivism the sort of overturning of a constitutional limited government ideals of the American founding. And so now what we have, at least in the public square, is we have a a sort of contest in which the average American, our political traditions, our documents are grounded in what I would call a sort of a consensus theism of the Judeo-Christian tradition. But the commanding heights of culture are now occupied by secularism and progressivism, which tend to look to the state for every solution and tend to be, at least practically speaking, a kind of atheistic philosophy. And so you've got a battle for those things, and that's why I think it's correct to say that we're in a culture war. It's not a war of, of bullets, but it is a war of ideas. Speaking of ideas, one of the things you point out is that many Christian students and conservative students, they're taught what to believe, but they're not equipped with why they should believe that. How has that happened, and are adults, Christians, and conservatives in the same boat? Absolutely. I mean, we, we have a whole chapter where we really, we really talk about education itself, but it's not just about the question about school choice and things like that. I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that children often poorly catechized. In other words, they might be taught, you know, if they're a Christian, to say the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. But if the university where they're sent is radically secularist, then their freshman year, they may have been taught some creedal things that they sort of believed without thinking about it, but it's going to come under attack, and the foundations of those beliefs come under attack. And I saw it happen as an undergraduate and in graduate school and in seminary, is that somebody will show up, you know, in September believing one thing, and in May of the same academic year, they've got an entirely different worldview. And that's not, I think, because the arguments for materialism and atheism are so persuasive. It's because kids aren't taught how to deal with those things. A really good education is not going to be indoctrination, where kids are just taught what to think. Rather, education requires that people be exposed to the best arguments on multiple sides of an issue. So if you're taught to be a Christian and to believe in God, you need to know what the best arguments on the other side are. I call this inoculation. So we don't want our kids either to be 
be quarantined where they don't get exposed to these things and then they don't build up an immunity to it. But we also don't want them to be overexposed. You don't throw a child into a, a situation where he or she can't deal with it. You want to inoculate your children and that requires exposing them to all sorts of ideas, including bad ideas, but exposing it to them uh, in a way that they can build up a resistance, if you will. And so I would say inoculation, it should be our ideal as conservatives. And for me as a Christian, that should be the educational ideal. The truth of the matter is, I think, as you said, a lot of adults were not educated in this way. And so You know, I see it all the time with fellow Christians and fellow conservatives in political debates. Maybe somebody's arguing about whether we should preserve traditional marriage or have same-sex marriage. I've heard a well-placed Christian say, well, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Well, that's evidence that this person has not (laughs) thought really carefully about what the case for a traditional marriage is. So they're sort of left with this reactionary replies to these public debates. We have to think through to the foundations of these ideas uh, that we claim to believe. So if generally conservatives and or Christians or the Christian worldview is dominant in the culture, why do they seem so powerless and why is it that that point of view isn't the dominant cultural view anymore? Well, it's funny because, I mean, if you took a poll, it's at least dominant in terms of numbers. I would say Americans, including Americans that are Republicans and Democrats, generally have a kind of Judeo-Christian perspective. Maybe not really consistent, but that's still the view. But it's definitely not the sort of prevailing idea in the culture. I mean, the example I use is the way in which atheism is taught in science and materialism. Most people think God created the universe in some way. That doesn't mean they necessarily think God did it a few thousand years ago, differ on the details. But most people think God created the world and he had something to do with the history of life. And yet no one has taught that. Certainly you couldn't even imply something like that in a public school or in a university or something. My co-author on The Privilege planet, Guillermo Gonzalez, learned this the hard way at Iowa State. He was a most prominently published scientist at the school, but when he came up for tenure, an atheist professor led a petition drive against him because Guillermo had advocated intelligent design, said there was scientific evidence of intelligent design, and he ended up not getting tenure at Iowa State, and he moved to Grove City. And this is a perfect example of how the commanding heights have been, I would say, sort of occupied by this, this secularist ideology. And that's a problem because the general sort of drift of a culture is not dictated by just the general public. It's ultimately guided and dictated by elite opinion. And elite opinion is almost entirely secularist and materialist in its philosophy. And that's a difficulty because it seems like that shouldn't be the case in a democracy. You would think that the general population would have more of a say on these things. But the truth of the matter is that the commanding heights of culture have been occupied by this secularist philosophy. And it's going to take a lot of serious and concerted work on the part of Christians and people of faith and conservatives if we're ever going to recover some of those influential parts of the culture again. As I read your book, Indivisible, my impression was that it was portable body armor for these kinds of intellectual debates, portable intellectual armor so that conservatives and people of faith would be able to go out no matter what the issue is and make some of these arguments in the public sphere. Is that the goal? That is absolutely the goal. In fact, Dave, I think I will use that in my description from now on, (laughs) portable body armor, because that's really what we wanted to do. I mean, I looked at probably 25 or 30 different books that have been written in the last five years, really kind of faith and politics books, you know, books written for people of faith or for conservatives on political issues. And they all kind of seem to do the same thing, and they tended to just presuppose the arguments. And what James Robinson and I wanted to do is we wanted to distill the very best 
arguments that can be made for these issues, whether you're talking about marriage or free trade or limited government or abortion, what are the best public arguments that we can make? Of course, yeah, we, I'd like to know to understand as a Christian, how should I think about an issue? But I also want to know what kind of arguments would be persuasive to those people that are sort of fence sitters. That's really what we need, and that's what we wanted to do in this book, and to make these arguments in a way that is accessible to the non-specialist, so you didn't necessarily have to have a graduate degree in philosophy or debate or something like that. We hope you've enjoyed this discussion of Indivisible, Restoring Faith, Family, and Freedom Before It's Too Late. This podcast is brought to you by the Discovery Institute's Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality. If you'd like more information about the center, please go to discovery.org and click on the Center for Wealth, Poverty, and Morality link. The podcast is copyright 2012, the Discovery Institute. All rights reserved. Discovery Institute's new Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality is home to some of the nation's leading defenders of free enterprise. They include renowned writer and futurist George Gilder, award-winning author Jay Richards, and syndicated radio personality Michael Medved. You are invited to join us as we kick off Discovery Institute's new Center on Wealth, Poverty, and Morality at a special reception to be held Tuesday, March 13th, 6 p.m. at the Rainier Square Conference Center, located at 1301 Fifth Avenue in downtown Seattle. Come meet these scholars and learn more about the activities of the Center in the coming year. For more information on this event, please visit www.discovery.org. We hope to see you there.